Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Michael McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. So join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. Normally at Science and Beers we have one guest and we we take a dive deep into their area of expertise and and learn a bit about them but I'm very happy about this podcast because we have two people and we're not just going to be talking about their uh, areas of expertise which happen to be quite different from each other. One's literature and one's global health but we're going to be focusing on the idea that they came up with when they met each other. I'm a big fan of the fact that Christina Penn and Brian Yazelle come from two different research worlds, but they came together and they wanted to encourage people to imagine the future, to imagine the world in 2025. And they're doing that through a short story competition. Two pages describing a day in your life or in a character's life in 2025. Now the competition, it is directly targeted at students of the University of Southern Denmark. But I'm going to be doing this this task and it's uh, if you aren't a student of the University of Southern Denmark and you want to participate, I would be curious to read uh, what you've got and you can send that to scienceandbeers at gmail.com. So there's a couple of, couple of abbreviations that are going to come up in this podcast. One is SDU, and that uh, stands for the University of Southern Denmark. And one is DS, and that stands for the Danish Institute for Advanced Study, of which both guests are a part of. And that institute actually focuses on bringing together researchers from different fields just to see what ideas they can come up with. Please help us uh, promote this podcast. Please tell a friend about it share it on social media give us a rating on uh, on whatever you're using to listen to your podcasts anything to to get the word out there i i hope you have a beer in your hand and uh, you're ready to to learn about all sorts of things from literature to sci-fi climate change and vaccines and visions of the future. I'm your host, Michael McGee. Cheers to science. I, I, I don't know whether you have a beer or not, do you? I you do, actually. Yeah. You do? Well, let me get one. This is a local Mozambique beer called uh, Deutsch M, 2M. Very, very good beer. Yeah, it's a, I have to say it's actually a really great beer. Yeah, what kind of beer is it? It's a oh this here comes the problem they make them with these screw off lids which are not at all easy to manage. Okay, yeah, you need a thick skin for that. Yeah, maybe I need to go to my PhD student. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on a second. I honestly, that's what I'm going to do. I I can't open it myself. No, I actually ran out of uh, beer, so I am drinking water today. I'm running clean. Well, I am on the uh, a Kiss Bear Session IPA. And oh, yeah, those are very nice. Yeah. Did, did your did your student help, Christina? He did. <laughs> <laughs> We're just next. 
this next uh, door here. We are in a, in a hostel in rural Mozambique right now. Well, cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers. So, what are you doing in Mozambique, Christina? Field work. We're setting up a new trial here. Um, so, yes, we are um, in this rural area where they have a local hospital that will be enrolling participants shortly in our trial of BCT vaccine to uh, mitigate the impact of the COVID pandemic and uh, reduce the risk of respiratory infections in general. Okay, well, we're going to get on to that. I think an introduction is in order, uh, first of all. Uh, so it's, it's unusual for me to have two guests, so I'm quite excited about this. Uh, Brian Yazel, you are an assistant professor at the Department of, for the Study of Culture at the University of Southern Denmark. Uh, you're also a fellow at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, Christina right, yeah. Stable-Ben, you're, um, you're a professor at the, uh, the Open um, uh, the owns the patient data explorative network at the Faculty of Health yes. Sciences at the University of Southern yes. Denmark, and you're also a, a a chair of health sciences at the Danish Institute for Advanced Studies. Uh, you're also a professor at the on the head of the Bandum Health Project, which is yeah. Which is that? Which, what is that now? <laughs> It is a collaboration between SDU and the Ministry of Health in Guinea-Bissau. It's a field station uh, in Guinea-Bissau, a small West African country with 1.8 million inhabitants. Um, it has been operating there since 1978, um, so more than 40 years. Uh, I joined in 1993, so that's also an awful lot of years ago. Uh, and uh, what we're doing there is working, basically, I think the one line sentence to, to, to describe what we're doing is to try to evaluate the real life impact of health interventions, which are believed to have certain uh, effects, um, but in reality, it's very rarely tested. So that is what we are doing. We're kind of the watchdogs. We're out there monitoring what happens when new health interventions are introduced and, um, and they are to shout out if we see that some health interventions believed to be beneficial either don't have the anticipated effect or have much better effect than anticipated or in some situations might even do harm, even though everybody anticipates them to be beneficial. And you're, you're referring there to, to vaccines, Christine. I'm referring to all kinds of health interventions. So if you go back through 40, more than 40 years of research, there are actually some uh, myth busting taking place there. So we have looked at vaccines. We have uh, the main thing that we are pursuing right now is the uh, observation that vaccines, in addition to their effects against the target disease, also have effects on other diseases. But I started out in vitamin A supplementation that everybody believed was super beneficial, and and I was able to show that no, actually it wasn't. So that you could just extrapolate from the fact that kids of vitamin A who have vitamin A deficiency, that they die more frequently, it, it doesn't directly translate into vitamin A supplementation than saving those lives because it's actually much more complex than that. You just can't, and that's actually the case for many micronutrients, you can't just substitute a deficiency and anticipate to have um, that the, the effect that that will take away all the 
excess morbidity due to that deficiency. Um, so, so vitamin A is another area, micronutrients is another area where we've done some myth busting. And we've also done it in relation to malaria treatment by showing, for instance, that the much cheaper uh, malaria drug, well-tolerated, well-known side effects, was actually just as uh, efficient as newer, much more expensive malaria drugs. Uh, so, so another thing I could say is that exclusive breastfeeding is beneficial. That's also a dogma that you know women shouldn't give their children anything but breast milk in the first six months of life. Well, we. We busted that myth in Guinea-Bissau also by showing that actually if mothers gave their children water, it didn't make any difference, uh, that that uh, there was no benefit uh, of uh, exclusive breastfeeding in that context. So in, in many, it's not just vaccines. Vaccines is sort of our brand now, but, but actually we look into many health interventions. And basically, clearly in more situations uh, than... Than not, we found out that the health interventions that were promoted by the donor organizations, by the global health communities, that they didn't work as anticipated. Well, well, that that's that's fascinating. I I held the belief that uh, that, that breast milk was uh, was a healthy way to, to to feed your child over over the the formula. It's certainly healthy over the formula, but it's not the the dogma that you should not give your child anything else than breast milk in the first six months, four to six months of life, that doesn't hold true in an African community because you don't see any added value of that. So there has been this tendency to stigmatize mothers who did anything else than exclusive breastfeeding, and that turns out not to be built on science. Well, well that's certainly a fascinating topic. I love the love the myth busting, especially because you're, you're, you're not just busting myths you're busting we i'm going to call them science myths because you have you have something that's the the accepted norm and then new evidence comes to light and that's not true anymore which is essentially what science is you know you, you have a, a, the, the best theory for the moment but if new evidence comes along to disprove that then the scientific dogma should move with it you know and, and uh, it's great that you have people like you that are checking the facts with big data to to make sure that's true uh Brian, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your your background, where you come from, and what your research interests are? Uh, yeah, I, I um, I'm from California originally, um, in the states, and I did my PhD at UC Davis in literature, and I actually did my doctoral research on, I guess you could loosely say, um, social welfare politics and literature. Um, I was specifically interested in interested in uh, the Great Depression and the different types of novels and biographies and memoirs that were written around that time about you know the experience of homelessness and poverty and how these were a big component of generating support and concern for you know welfare relief at this time when this was really happening in the U.S. and so this really interesting convergence of cultural forces aligning with more traditional political actors to make legislation happen, or at least make it more popular. And um, that actually brought me to Denmark to work as a postdoc at the Uses of Literature project that's been there for about five years now. It's actually about to end the Niels Bohr Professorship Program, which was basically a research program dedicated to loosely define the social dimensions of literature. So literature and welfare, literature and health, healthcare, literature, um, and so just really any aspect you can think of, just how can we redefine literature's impact on society? It's something that I think we 
all sort of believe that literature matters, literature has some sort of social dimension, but how do you define that? How do you track that? Um, so I was a postdoc there for about two years and then uh, finishing that, I w applied and was hired at Dias to continue that same type of work. And so, yeah, I, I would say there's kind of two phases to my research interest. One is this historical dimension to literature and um, welfare, um, looking at cases in the early 20th century. And I've had this particular interest in migration politics and how migrant groups have been represented in literature over time and how that might, again, mobilize support for different types of migrant demographic groups. Um, and that interest really took me to the more speculative side of things with science fiction, because I was really struck after a while with how basically it's a given in every single science fiction story you read that in the future, most people will be living on the street or homelessness will be a huge portion of the population. Um, it just seemed like a powerful kind of imaginary that what does it mean that when we think of the future, it's hard to think of the future and not think of homelessness and poverty as being a part of that future. Um, and so this brought me to um, climate fiction, of course, too. So climate change, probably, you know, the biggest driver for uh, inequality in the future, in addition to existing problems, what happens when uh, sea levels rise and, you know, drought destroys crops and people can't live where they used to, this, of course, is going to lead to more migration, um, more poverty. And literature and science fiction is an area where these problems are really considered uh, quite a lot. So yeah. um, those are my two sort of abiding interests, I would say. Well, it's a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. My background is in biology. So so to have two experts from 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 different fields in there uh, at the same time, it's, it's a pleasure. In normal circumstances, in an ideal world, we would be at the pub having a chat. Uh, but b back to your, your literature work there. So um, I'm sure you've read a few more books than I have, Brian, but, but uh, I'm thinking uh, The Grapes of Wrath, you know, uh, the Great Depression uh, in the US, and you're talking about migrants uh, from, from the Okies going over, over to, to, the, to the West. I actually happened to read that um, during the, the, the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, well, this was a, a powerful, powerful book that could only give the reader empathy for the for the the, the migrant. Whereas it has it has it really changed anything? Because here we are, eighty years later, um, and and uh, there's we're still the same things happening. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great point, and. Yeah, The Grapes of Wrath is a, a huge example. I mean, it's probably one of the most read novels still, I think, in, in the U.S., especially like in high school um, classes in, in English. And yeah, I mean, it's it's on the one hand, it mobilized support and sympathy, as you say, for, for people in that position um, on the road. Um, yeah, dealing with vagrancy and homelessness. At the same time, the novel, I think, has been criticized to, to stick to that one example because uh, in order to mobilize support, uh, Steinbeck really stresses things that he he knows his audience uh, or intends his audience to sympathize with. So in that novel, for example, the fact that they're just like us. So he stresses, you know, these are these are, you know, Americans who are just like us. But who, you know, the question is, who are we? Right. So it's it's a question of um, stressing uh, familiar family structures, the, the strong family unit in that novel, of course, is a big part of what generates support. Um, and so a lot of uh, critics these days point out, you know, he's overlooking people who aren't, for example, white um, people who are, you know, like Latinos who are working in the, in the grape 
feels at that time aren't featured in that novel. And that's not so much uh, a problem of the novel, but I think it points to how, um, in terms of what migrancy might look like today, it doesn't necessarily account for that type of um, fear of the other. And so I think that's why it's interesting to me to look at how that might um, be, be redirected to, to maybe a more diverse or encompassing vision of migrancy and literature that's being produced now, as opposed to in the thirties. But, but yeah, anyway, so it, you're totally right. I mean, that is, I think a question I, I think about all the time, right? How can you take this support that might be useful at one time and also maybe amplify it to be, be more encompassing? Yeah. Now, I really want to get into more detail into your, both of your areas of research, but before we do, we have to talk about the, the reason why you guys are working together. So there's a, a writing competition, uh, a, a way you're trying to encourage people to imagine the future through literature. Uh, the project's called Write Your Future, and it's, it's specifically for the students of the University of Southern Denmark, but I, I, I'm not a student at the University of Southern Denmark, but I would like to do this anyway. This is a, a, a real fun way to, to, to sit down and write a two-page short story about where do I see the world in 2025. You guys are from two different worlds of research. How, how did you get together and come up with this idea? Maybe I'll start. Uh, I think one of the, the biggest benefits to working at Dias, which were um, colleagues um, there together, is the whole institute's designed around getting people who are from different disciplinary backgrounds to like literally just share the same space. I think that's kind of the grand vision uh, for Dias. So we have meetings that draw from all different faculties um, and we're encouraged to find overlap. And so honestly, it's it's an occasion that I think wouldn't have happened otherwise. I don't think Christina and I would necessarily even have crossed paths if we weren't in Dias. I mean, maybe in the hallway, that that's it. And so I think uh, my recollection is that I was talking about science fiction and how science fiction stories are set in the future, of course, but um, they're clearly about the present. They're taking social issues, um, conventions, practices, the way we live our lives, and it's projecting these present concerns onto the future in order to amplify them and make us more aware of things that are embedded in our everyday lives might be yeah, exaggerated or, or blown up in the future. And so in other words, a good way to think about how people feel about present conditions is to write stories set in the future. And then this got, I think, Christina, I think you were the one that came up with the idea of this is an appropriate thing to talk about in relation to COVID. Of course, everyone's speculating about the future. So why not ask people to write stories and, and get to it through a creative process of fiction writing? Yeah, I mean, maybe yes. you can bring your side into it too, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that's exactly it. I mean, you can hear Brian talking and how inspiring it is to think about literature in that way. And and when I heard his presentation at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study, I was just uh, it it somehow fed into things. Yeah, a long track record track record of me and literature and and what I've thought about literature. And then hearing Brian what was saying what he he was saying about the science fiction made me think that could we actually draw on the students of, of SDU and their imagination about the future to tell us both about the potential scenarios of the future, but also about their current their current state of mind. Um, and uh, yeah, to go back a little bit, I think, uh, I just want to tell you a story, which is uh, maybe 
explains why I, I caught on to what Brian said and, and got this idea. Uh, and that was uh, stemming back from uh, a collaboration I had with the Danish author, Sissel Jokasang, who writes scientific crime novels. And I approached her back in 2008 when she had written uh, her quite famous uh, scientific crime novel called uh, The Feather of the Dinosaur, Dinosaurus Fear, uh, because I saw an interview with her. She had just written this book and she gave an interview and she was asked, what, what next? And she was saying, I don't really know, but I want to use my writing skills to make a difference in the world. And I'm contemplating going to Africa and uh, with my daughter, I'm, you know, she had all kinds of balls in the air, as we say in Denmark. And, and, and I was writing to her, uh, I, I just, and I very rarely write to people I don't know, but I wrote her an email and I said, you know, what you're saying here is just making me so uh, interested in pitching an idea with you because we have this research into vaccines that shows that vaccines can have these non-specific effects and sometimes they are harmful and sometimes being so controversial in a world where vaccines have been announced to be the you know the the best thing in the world to, to is like you know it's it's uh, blasphemic and uh, it feels like some, sometimes even people would like to kill you for saying that so couldn't we couldn't you write a crime novel about a professor proposing that vaccines could have negative non-specific effects who is about to be killed and then <laughs> then that could be the skeleton for your next scientific crime novel and Sissel wrote back to me and said I love the idea I, I'm coming to Africa let's let's do this so she came to Africa in 2009 did her field work and wrote uh, over some years uh, Svenskaf um, the Ark of the Swallow, which was a scientific crime novel, a sequel of, of The Feather of the Dinosaur, which was about this professor uh, who who got killed on page 18, I think. For, <laughs> <laughs> and one of the suspicions is really that that uh, this could be due to the scientific viewpoints and discoveries that they were so controversial, so so people really wanted to kill him for that. So this was just a little a little advertiser for Sissel's novel, which is absolutely fantastic. But but when I was discussing I went to a dinner in this process with Cecil's editor at Gyllendale at that time, and she was saying to me, I was so intrigued by, by this idea about vaccines when I read Cecil's book, and I realized that vaccines is about giving you a little bit of the deadly, deadly pathogen, but in such a small dose that it's not really killing you, it's just, uh, you know, preparing you to meet the real bad guy. Um, so, so, and she said, I'm, I'm starting, I'm thinking so much about metaphors for uh, reading and also to, we are, we are concerned at, at Gyllendale that people will stop reading shortly. So how can we make it, them aware of the benefits of literature? And, and she said, I, I'm actually speculating that maybe we should try to sell literature as a little kind of a vaccine. It's, it's introducing a little bit of the dangers of life into you. You are kind of living through the dangers of heartbreak or uh, people dying or wars or uh, migration issues or what, what not. But through living that in the literature, it's not dangerous. It's not killing you. It's like a vaccine. It's not going to kill you. It just kind of gives you the experience that will prepare you for the real thing afterwards do you get me I, I like that analogy because in in a novel you can live another life you can live the life of a character and you can live through their experience and then you can you can gain that experience and take it on board to live your own life so i, I do like that analogy and i i, I also like that 
you, you inspired a, a novel yourself. That's uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic, but but the the the, the issue here was that that it was, yeah. The, I I it really also res resonated in me that because that's the way I've always been reading so much, and for me it made sense that you live these kind of test lives through your the characters in your novel, and and you you gain experience about life that you wouldn't have gained in any other way. You can live so many lives through literature. You can live a whole life in an evening when you're reading a novel uh, that you could never have yeah, lived yourself. So, so I think that was, I'm just giving you a little bit of background because I think when I heard Brian talk, this was what yeah, all melded together into this idea that could we, and, and now coming back to that again, could we draw on the SDU students' experiences? Could they actually, they are, we have 30,000 students at SDU, could they live 30,000 test lives for us in two pages and tell us about their vision? Because that would be an enormous resource for experience that we couldn't have had in any other way. So this was how the idea was born. I, I love it. Just just these different moving parts from different worlds, and uh, that that's where ideas come from. Just uh, slightly different perspectives, just rubbing together. I like that a lot. But I also like that uh, that the author that you inspired, Cecil uh, Kazan, she she actually really tried to understand the science before writing her novel. So then the reader was at least informed. There's a lot of writers out there. I'm thinking popular Dan Brown. That, that uses scientific uh, language, but is far from based, far from any base in science. Is is there a danger? It's very special about. Sorry, one one. It's very special about Cecil. Yeah, yeah. That she has this background in biology too, and she ah. really, I can, I can testimony. I have the testimony there because she was working for this on this novel for four years. She was, you know, reading every line in our scientific articles. I have hundreds and hundreds of emails um, between us where she has asked me into the science. So she's really keen on getting all the scientific details right. So you're absolutely right. I think that's uh, marvelous about her. She doesn't just throw around the scientific words. She's actually into the, the substance and understood it uh, just as well as we did uh, by the end. If I can go back to you, Brian. So so the what are you expecting? Are you expecting... Um, to, to read stories, like positive stories of people's lives in 2025? Are you expecting to read uh, whole different ways of governance? Are you expecting to read uh, more of the same? Uh, can, can you give me something that you're, you're, you're looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, I think we're both open. I think especially from my perspective, I'm just excited to see what the range of, of possible responses are. Um, I, I expect most people don't anticipate things will be exactly normal. I think within you know the couple of years, even I, I imagine um, at least speaking from my own perspective that there are certain things that will change. You know, in terms of Zoom, more meetings over Zoom, or you know maybe not having the the maybe thinking twice about going on this huge vacation, or maybe having more restrictions that will prevent you from doing that. Future pandemics, of course, too. Um, hopefully there'll be some optimistic uh, takes on it too uh, in terms of what they're expecting. But um, I, I want to point out too that actually there's a, a colleague at SDU I have named Patricia Wolf who works in marketing and management. And she actually, um, well before Christina approached, approached me with this, this idea to collaborate, um, she had talked about how she's used 
uh, flash fiction, which is this idea of having people write really short, like a two-page story. And it's usually done in, in a short period of time. But she's used this before to actually suss out how people feel about governance and politics and um, things like infrastructure design. Because if you ask somebody, well, what do you think is going to happen in five years? Or do you like this policy or not? You will get a response that you know, is useful. But actually, if you ask people to write a story set in that world, so rather than saying, what do you expect in five years, but write a story about that, um, she's found that it gives people kind of license to express themselves maybe more fully if they have this sort of fictional framing to it, if that makes sense. And so it actually has really profound insights in terms of actually getting at how people feel about certain issues when they're um, tasked with a creative form of expression. Um, and so that really also excited me too. So when Christina um, and, and I were talking about this, um, I at least could draw on some previous research that's been done along these lines to suggest that it, whether or not we can predict what they're going to say, I think it's going to be expressive of how people really think about the future, what their concerns are. And that'd be really useful to, yeah, people in government, policymakers, um, everyone really to, to understand what those views are. Well, you mentioned earlier on about your, your your interest in science fiction, but I do want to talk to you about uh, the, the the genre that I've only recently heard about, uh, climate fiction, cli-fi. I, I imagine that's not the most positive genre going. Yeah, no, no, I think that's actually one of the uh, the knocks against it is it's 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 quite um, demoralizing, you might say. It's a bit dark, uh, but yeah, it's so that that's that's a. a yeah, a genre that's become definitely popular, I think, among academics and I think among readers too, that um, are just about the effects of, of climate change. And the difference being, of course, science fiction's always been about exploring other worlds and about, you know, engineering planets out of thin air or whatever the case may be. Um, but really, really distinguishes this genre or type of writing is that it's about man-made climate change, anthropogenic climate change. And it's there's no mistaking where this climate change comes from. Um, and so over the last 10 or 20 years, I guess you might say, um, there's been a rise of typically science fiction stories, stories set in the near future or the far future that just reckon with the consequences of this. And they often are dystopian or apocalyptic stories. And so in that case, yeah, they're not uh, uh, uplifting, you might say. Um, but I think the idea is they want to, you know, sound the alarm. They want to bring it to people's attention. And again, because science fiction is about, it's about the future, but it's about preparing our present to make those futures happen or to avoid these futures. And so I think by focusing on these apocalyptic or dystopian scenarios, the idea is it's, it's supposed to kind of make us aware of it and, and maybe do something to prevent them from happening. I think that's the ideal interpretation. It must be coming from the, the media coverage that non-fiction climate subjects have, have had this past 10 years. That must be inspiring authors to write about it. Uh, but it's also a, a, a somewhat of a controversial debate. There, there's people on there's people that believe in man-made climate change and people who don't, and they seem to be on... There's a, It could be in polar opposites of, of a debate at the moment, but do you think that uh, writing about climate change man-made climate change in fiction can can change people's behaviors in a way that would uh, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we're pumping out into the atmosphere yeah 
I mean, I think as a literary scholar, 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 I'm uh, I'm I'm clearly someone who thinks it's uh, important that we have uh, literary fiction that engages with these issues. I will point out, much like John Steinbeck, to go back to the example earlier, John Steinbeck was also a journalist who was writing nonfiction just reports about refugees or you know um, uh, displaced people in the U.S. But of course, Grapes of Wrath is his breakthrough novel, and this is what we remember today. We don't remember his reporting as much. Um, there's also a climate fiction writer named Paolo Bacigalupi, who is a journalist and has written on climate issues before, um, but of course his, his novels are much more prominent. So I think on that level, I think fiction has the ability to break through into popular culture a bit more than maybe reporting does, because of course there's, you know, you can open a newspaper any day and find stories about climate change and they're important, uh, but they often get overlooked. And I think also there's a larger issue going on that many scholars have written about um, related to climate change is one of just imagining climate change as a representational problem because it's so big and rather unprecedented that people have a hard time grasping the enormity of it. And so there's been some concern that this is a failure of a collective imagination along these lines. And this is why we struggle to pass laws or enact meaningful collective action because we just have a hard time imagining it. So I think this is, again, if you think of fiction as a way to, to spark the imagination, then, it, then fiction's where you might have some, some work to, to be done along those lines. Because the actual science of climate change is quite complicated. You're talking physics, cosmology, you're talking chemistry. And... Science is complicated. Yeah, oh, yeah it, it's a science issue, but it's also a vis visibility issue, especially uh, people in the wealthier countries in, in the West. Um, don't really see the effects as much. Of course, I'm from California, so um, you know there's fires every single season that are getting worse every year because of prolonged droughts. And so there are there are visible effects, but largely the, the sense that it's going to be complete catastrophic, you know, apocalyptic scenarios. It's not something you can necessarily see when you look out your window every day, right? Uh, for for people in more comfortable societies, uh, because we're talking about degree changes of you know, two, um, two degree change over however many decades or, or centuries. And that's, that's catastrophic on a planetary level, but that's, it's very hard to track on a day-to-day -day life. And so, um, again, the idea I think is ideally fiction would let you appreciate the big scale of it, the enormity of it, because of course with fiction, you can talk about planetary, you know, aspects, you could cross time, you could, imagine alternate societies and so again i think it's a, a, an issue of scale as well as science if that makes sense uh one more question brian before i ask I go on to christina um so so the people that are buying these uh books about cli climate fiction would, would they be the kind of people that would agree with with uh, uh the fact that or agree with the science to say that uh human emissions of carbon dioxide are, are warming the planet so there are some some studies because of course the question is right how effective does climate change uh, change people's opinion or, or or sorry climate fiction really change people's minds or how does it really translate into political activism and yeah so early research shows that it is large people who already think climate change is a problem are reading these books so they don't really need convincing uh, so you're right that that is a bit of an echo chamber but I will point out that. Um, Whenever I mention my research interests or climate fiction to students, uh, I'm teaching classes or colleagues, for example, there is always this profound interest um, and excitement that books like this exist 
and, and people usually want to hear more about it. So I think there is a demand for these types of stories, even if people don't necessarily know they're already out there. And I think that demand will, you know, ideally translate into to more awareness, but mm-hmm. there's still some way to go on that, on that front for sure. Christine, uh, it's as if uh, vaccines have, have replaced uh, the, the, the climate debate in media this past year. And that debate is uh, is even more uh, heated than the, the climate debate. It it's it really feels to be black and white on on social media these days. People are very against uh, vaccines, or people or people are very for vaccines. And you have non experts on both sides of that argument that are you know just going back and forth on social media. Uh, I I've, I saw you on 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 the news and on social media, and you seem to be a a, a calm voice in in uh, in the debate that, that can that, that can speak rationally w- without uh you know polarizing complicated subject a little bit like climate change vaccines are a complicated subject because the body is a very very complicated uh, thing <laughs> uh, and if if the story was black and white it might be easier to understand if all vaccines were were br- brilliant you'd be that's an easy story to tell um, but that's not the case. Could, could, could you elaborate a little bit on, on what you found out with vaccines? When we're now talking, and that is really the benefits of talking across disciplines, isn't it? That you become aware of how similar some of your problems are with the, those experienced in other fields. Then um, I, I think there's a general tendency that you, you're talking about, uh, Brian, in relation to climate and, and, and you also, Michael, and, and which is the same tendency that's, that we see in, in vaccinology. And it isn't actually that new. It goes back at least 10 or 20 years. Um, or I mean, historically, it's it's been there forever, but it's been more in the media the last 10 or 20, 20 years. The, the very polarized view on vaccines, uh, which which may be just as polarized as, as that on climate, as you said. Um, I, I'm speculating whether it's um, somehow uh, reflecting a lack of uh, religion uh, that you... There is these these subjects become a substitute for uh, another place where you could put your very strong beliefs, uh, and it becomes uh, moral issues. And I think that's really where it starts becoming complica- complicated. That you are you associate your opinion on climate or on vaccines with your moral habitus. So you are kind of a currently a better person if you say that vaccines are wonderful uh, they are saving lives everybody who says anything else is really uh, a bad person who hasn't understood anything uh, and and i think the same goes for the for the climate debate uh, to some extent that there is also the moral imperative is really or the moral overhand is on those who say that climate change is a big threat and and they I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm for vaccines. I'm. I do believe that we have a problem with the climate, but I do also have a problem with the way the narrative and the way that it has become a, a moral uh, issue, and you're allowed to look down on people who don't see the world in the very same way as as you do. Uh, they are bad persons. They're not just people you disagree with scientifically. They are actually really horrible people who are 
anti-vaxxers or <laughs> who are, you know, climate uh, whatever deniers. I don't know which expressions exist mm -hmm. in that world. And and that, to me, is so sad because it really blocks the scientific, the good scientific discussion because it, it becomes legitimate to dismiss people's opinions on moral grounds. Um, just the fact that they have another opinion than you makes them bad people that you don't have to listen to. So I'm, I'm glad if you find that I'm a calm voice, Michael, because what I've really attempted to do in the vaccine debate is to say, don't let the debate be so, become so polarized that I honestly can't see the difference between those who are pro-vax, who are so pro-vax that they're not able to listen to scientific arguments, but just dismiss anything that is not entirely pro-vax. And, and, and I can't see the difference to, to, between them and those who are on the other side of the discussion who are saying all vaccines are bad. I'm not going to take one of those. These are just promoted by Bill Gates to, mm. you know, reduce the number of people in the world or what do I know? They so, so I'm really looking for that middle ground where I actually think there are a lot of people, if you dig into it, who are willing to take the scientific discussion because that's where my interest is. And that is where the, the science is. And I don't, I don't want to spend time on either poll. And I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know if it's the same in, in the climate world, but it, but it, um, to, if you also could find some kind of middle ground. But because the problem is that even though you might feel that the things are so clear that you can just dismiss people who are not thinking the same as you are, then we are really losing out on something. We are losing out on the... the um, we just can't dismiss a large proportion or even a proportion of the population and say they're stupid because that's not going to bring us forward. I, I, I see that so much in, in relation to vaccines and the debate around vaccines that we will never persuade anybody who's anti-vax or vaccine hesitant by telling them that they are stupid. That's, that's not going to... No. <laughs> but, but that's an interesting comment about the... the Maybe the irrationality on on both ends of the of this of the spectrum, but they're they're the loudest voices. So if you open Twitter, they're the voices that you're going to to hear to read. But the people in the middle, but that probably comes from yeah. I think that comes from the kind of religious indignation. It's uh, the the feeling that you have an immoral. Uh, that it's not just a scientific viewpoint; it's also also a moral uh, duty. I don't know what the English word would be. A, a crusade. A, yes, it becomes a crusade, and and that that gives a, a lot of energy. You shouldn't be mistaken about that. If you're on a crusade, you're you're burning with fire, and you and and that's partly lending that energy, I think, into the poles of the debates, whatever you're debating. Uh, that it it fuels from. Uh, the feeling of a moral imperative and from, um, um, yeah. Well, that, that, that is interesting. Because science, it is, it is, uh, it's constantly evolving. Science should be, should be rational. It should be based on evidence and, and new evidence keeps coming, coming to light. This, this COVID vaccine, for example, it's been on the market for a matter of months now. We're still waiting on the data to come in. There have been 40 million people vaccinated with 
the AstraZeneca vaccine at the moment. Um, at the moment, there's there's no reportage of, of of any major concerns, but there was whenever whenever there's a couple of people reported with the with the blood clots, then they they they, they stopped everything, just to examine the if if there was cause for concern there. But but then because they did did that, they're kind of waking up the extra questions people have about about vaccines and the the, the extra doubt that they may, they might have about it. Are you aware just just while you're here of the the latest uh, COVID vaccine research? If if there's is there any cause for concern there? <laughs> yeah. So. Where we started was uh, with our research, which is looking into the overall health effects of, of vaccines, among others, and how they work in real life. So, of course, from my viewpoint, I'm uh, having seen all these interventions supposedly working in one way and turning out to work in another way. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a sound skepticism towards um, whichever claim is made about any health intervention if it has not yet been studied in terms of its effect on overall health? Does it actually reduce mortality and morbidity? Because what I've learned is you can't just uh, extrapolate it based on its effect against the vaccine disease. So having a vaccine that protects against COVID does not, does not necessarily mean that it has a beneficial effect on your overall health. Um, I, I haven't seen any very big issues of concern, in it, but, but to be, Honest, I haven't seen the data I wanted to see to be ascertained that there were no problems. Um, I am, when you ask me, I'm I'm concerned about the blood clotting. I don't think it's a big issue in terms of numbers, but I'm concerned that we are seeing a very distinct clinical picture that hasn't been seen before or very rarely been seen before. Um, that doctors come out in Denmark, in Norway, and and have and see the same type of young women or younger women who have been vaccinated and shortly after developed this complex clinical picture with blood clotting in the smaller vessels and with uh, large uh, bleedings uh, elsewhere in the body. And, and I'm kind of mystified by the fact that any symptom occurring right now after COVID is readily ascribed to long COVID, but any symptom occurring after vaccinations uh, <laughs> is, is to be proven link to the vaccine beyond any doubt before anybody would uh, accept it to be associated with uh, the vaccine. It simply doesn't make sense to me to have two different uh, criteria for association uh, when you look at symptoms after the disease and symptoms after the vaccine. So I'm, 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 I'm uh, slightly concerned also for because I am a pro-vax, I'm, I'm for vaccines. I think they're wonderful um, overall. I mean, there are differences between vaccines, but generally speaking, vaccines have done wonders. But I'm worried about the whole support for vaccines when industry, when authorities come out and, and readily dismiss any association with a new vaccine and a new clinical picture without allowing some degree of doubt, uh, which I think would in the long run go much further in terms of creating trust. Um, so, so if, if, yeah. So, so, so that, that's what um, the, the middle ground is doing. Yeah. You had the two polar opposites on the debate, but the middle ground might be 
more rational. And the only rational way to look at this is to look at the data. To There's no beliefs involved. There's no opinions involved. There's only the data. So so what does the data say? Yes. So so perhaps to... to to, to, to soothe the fires of the of the debate is, is just more um, scientific uh, tools, uh, ways of thinking, you know. Um, and less emotions. And yeah. let, get, the, get the emotions out of the way, just tools, t- scientific work toys, work, work, work tools to, uh, to be able to, to tell what, what, uh, what, what effect this vaccine has. Um, that's uh, that, that's the way to go for it. But it's not just the, the the vaccine that's complicated here. It it is, it is the, the various systems of, of governments that we have, and this is also true for for climate change. You know, it's not the the question isn't do we do we contribute to climate change or not, or should we get the vaccine or not? It, it's the whole system of governments that that is that we live in, that is is giving us a story, as contributing to the narrative. And implementing uh, legislation that will affect ho- how you participate in climate change or in vaccination. So there's climate is complicated, vaccines are complicated, and and the just just the way we we are today in in modern society is very complicated. And perhaps the only way to really understand this is through literature. <laughs> you know, I think so. Yeah. That is a good, uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's it's funny because I I'm just thinking about it right now that I'm such a rational person in terms of the science and uh, sort of the stringency and the uh, cutting off all the uh, edges and getting into the very substance of something and 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 literature is kind of all the opposite in some ways it's uh yeah it 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 might be rooted in some scientific or some kind of truth or but it's it's building on it and it's expanding on it and it's about fantasy and it's all the opposite and and uh, i don't know it's just intriguing to me that it's two such different worlds and what the and and in in the scientific medical world, I would do everything to cut away all the fluffiness of the literature. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I just think it's so important for us and so useful. And uh, yeah, this is why I uh, immersed into this project with Brian to see what can literature tell us about our medical future also. And I do think that it has a lot to tell us. Yeah, I mean, just if I could just jump in really quick too. I mean, uh, I think the idea that people have strong opinions about this, as, as you know, Michael's pointed out. I mean, people have very strong opinions, and I think um, not only beliefs, but um, they're everyone's speculating all the time on, on what's going to result from from changes that are happening, transformation, social, societal, you know, effects of these things, and so. I think what we'll get hopefully through through this uh, experiment is that um, this will give them the occasion to express themselves again in, in ways that are maybe less inhibited than than otherwise um, might be the case. Because as you point out, I mean, the debate is so heated. I think people might feel uncomfortable putting themselves on the line to just say, "This is what I think. This is this is what I would like to see happen." Um, but by posing it as a story, I think you can also get a lot um, out of that that might remove this sort of um, yeah inhibition, for lack of a better word. And that's one thing I want to point out, really, because I, if you want to enter the debate right now, you have to be pretty tough 
So if you want to go on Twitter or, or whatever social platform with your opinions, you have to be ready to meet a bunch of, <laughs> of vicious people out there who just want to, to cut you off. So, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm appalled by that because I think, do we want to have a, a media, social media discussion? Do we want to have politicians who are rough and tough and who can stand all kind of attacks. I don't, I want to have the sensitive people in Folketing in the parliament. I want to have them out in the social uh, media, on the social media, in the debate. I want to have the people who are, uh, um, who are not tough because who are, I, I want to have the whole, whole bunch of people uh, involved. And I think literature, uh, exactly what you're saying, Brian, makes so much sense because this is a place where you can express yourself even if you are not ready to go out and be killed on the social media. But but yeah, so, so and, and uh, yeah, it will hopefully attract an, a different group. And also, I mean, I don't want to miss out on anybody, but it will hopefully also give a platform for for those who don't feel prepared, because I think their voices are so much needed and wanted, but they are not. There's no platform for them right now. I'm I'm really excited to 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 hear the results of this this essay um competition. Just just one more question before I ask you both: How do you see the world in 2025? Brian, at the start of this uh, conversation, you mentioned that a lot of sci-fi is very negative. You know, the, the, the future is, is, is full of poverty, destruction, climate change, uh, for the worse. Um, are, for me, that's, that's perfectly understandable because every time you, you, you open up the media, you open up Twitter, you, you look at the news, it's all negative. There's terrible things happening in the world and, there's, and they're happening to you and they're happening to everybody else. Maybe it's hard to be positive in, in the literature world, but is there any sci-fi uh, that is that paints the future in in a in a in a light that is more positive yeah i mean certainly um and i would point out too that you know i think for a lot of people they would think that certain structures need to be broken down anyway right so i think the, the sort of destructive negative qualities i think for some people would be the the first step towards building something maybe more equitable or fair in the future um, but yeah, I mean, this is someone I, I go to quite a lot because he is very well informed, uh, but there's an American science fiction author named uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, who he is very interested in climate change and he's written, um, several books now on the subject. And, uh, I wouldn't say they're, they're like wholly, you know, optimistic utopias, but I mean, he's someone who is actually offering pragmatic solutions for not solutions out of climate change, but, you know, ways of imagining life continuing on in, in, a, in a more equitable way that are actually achievable today. They're not inventions of technology or, you know, alien contact or something that you can't really see today. But, I mean, he literally draws in stuff like um, many proposals that they call, you know, the, the, the Green New Deal in the U.S. I mean, he actually writes about these same types of laws that are already being proposed uh, as if they're enacted and how they might, you know, actually help people live a more equitable, in a more equitable society might reduce carbon emissions, might do these things like that. And to me, that's very inspiring because on the one hand, yes, these are things that we could just do today. I mean, they're, they're accomplished, they're, they're accomplishable. Um, but on the other hand, why does it take a science fiction novel to actually imagine a world in which they're, they're happening? So I think ideally, right, we'd read this and be like, yeah, you know, 
this actually doesn't need to wait 200 years. We could do this today. Um, and so I looked at him as, as an author who, who I think is trying to, to propose these more positive, if you want to use that term, um, solutions or, or perspectives on, on otherwise it looks like a apocalyptic future that waits us, you know? So 2025, is the world a better place? Christine? You're muted. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, yeah, I should have prepared for this, I guess. <laughs> Can I take some time to, to, to well, think about I, I, I was, it? I was also thinking before this chat about, about uh, the kind of real revolutions, the real life revolutions that have happened in, in recent years, say the Arab Spring or the Occupy Wall Street or the promises of Obama uh, or even Trump for that matter. Uh, all promised change, but it, it seemed to be more of the same. You're just more of the same. There's there hasn't been a real revolution that has, has shook in the world. Um, for there has been a revolution, and I think it has been in the wrong direction. To be honest, uh, I wrote a, an op-ed about it in in Ballingsgate yesterday. Uh, I'm I'm concerned that somehow we have changed our views of ourselves as human beings from being competent, immunologically competent to live in the world to being immunologically non-competent in terms of uh, seeing ourselves as super fragile. Uh, we are uh, having this virus here. The feeling was right away from the beginning that now um, this, this was a big threat. It would kill us all. It would not create any kind of natural immunity. So even immunologists who could have or should have known better, in my view, were taking their head under the arm and predicting that we would never develop any kind of natural immunity towards this virus and we would be just susceptible to infection after infection. And, and the only solution was to disinfect and keep a social distance and, and wait for the vaccines to come to save us all. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I actually oppose that viewpoint, and I do it for several reasons, but one of them being that this virus is harmless to most people. We have 20% who are, have absolutely no symptoms when they get infected, and, and we have less than 1%, less than a half percent, perhaps, that are actually succumbing to it, to it and, and die from it, and those people have an, a median age of 80-plus years and have... have many comorbidities. So in fact, our immune system, if we took, take on the positive glasses, the, our immune system is doing really well for the vast majority of us. Uh, so I think that is the, the key message here. And this is what we should have taken with us from, you know, billions of years on this planet that we are actually, we co-evolve with microbes, we are able to deal with them. And we are actually also handling this one pretty well. But I'm concerned that the major change happening here is not a happy one. It is a, a crippling one uh, that is changing our views of ourselves and our kids that we are now almost uh, disinfecting on an <laughs> hourly basis mm. but as vulnerable. And I don't want to feel vulnerable. I feel it crippling to feel vulnerable in that sense. And I think it will diminish our ability to live on, on on earth to go out and do great things if we constantly have to see ourselves as these very vulnerable uh, uh, 
creations uh, of nature. And instead of seeing ourselves as part of this animal kingdom that we are living on and, and which we have more or less lived in harmony with uh, and, and at least co-evolved with for so many years. So, so I'm a kind of pessimistic and this is also why I've involved myself in the debate because I feel there is a vacuum that nobody else seemed to want to fill. So kind of out of a responsibility feeling, it's not because I'm particularly happy with being in the media and I'm not particularly happy with getting all the negative feedback that sometimes follows, but I feel there is a vacuum that nobody else has taken up. And that is the space to say we are actually immunologically competent creatures and we don't have to live behind masks and with uh, disinfected hands for the rest of uh, human lifetime. Well, I think I think there's uh, there's seeds of positivity in what in what you said there. You know, if people can can dig into that and realize, hey, we we there there's there's something stronger in here than than what we felt this past this past year. We need to to refine that again. What about you, Brian? What's your what's would be your your, yeah. your story twenty twenty five? For me, I mean, kind of taking a perspective on it, and I think I alluded to this earlier. It's hard for me to think about the future without thinking about um, kind of work. I guess um, yeah. I think like it really, what I found fascinating is how quickly um, jobs adapted the way we do work, the way we you know work from home and all this sort of thing to this sort of you know. A situation that would have been kind of unimaginable just uh, you know over a year ago and so i guess my story would be maybe not so exciting um but i, I think for me I'd, I'd 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 focus on the workplace and i think um i think the idea of having the office where you go every day is probably i'd imagine going to change i think probably more like flexible offices that we share because otherwise we're being working from home half the time or something like that um what i do hope will happen too is that maybe on a structural level uh, governments will be more prepared for this type of thing. And, uh, you know, we won't go through this period of hysteria and fear and, and concern. And as Christina was saying, where people are sort of assuming these responsibilities on their own individual level to, to make sure that they are prepared to live in a world where pandemics are reality, but maybe on a more structural level, um, more collaboration, more research, more money for, for vac vaccine research and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I guess that's what I would talk about if I were, if I were to contribute to my own Competition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would like to see some more, some more uh, scientific literacy out there. There's a there was a Science and Peers talk that a guy called Dan Mills gave a couple of years ago called the Nosphere. The Nosphere, and it's it's based on whenever whenever humans have a proper understanding of how the world works, and we're, we're talking specifically about biogeochemistry. Uh, so, so how do the microbes on our planet interact to give us the the very ground that we walk on and to give us the air that we breathe? As you said earlier on, Christina, we've been evolving with microbes for millions of years, and it, to, to truly understand this this ecosystem, this synergy, is is a tool that we need to learn if we're going to be a space going race. You can't just send a rocket up there with humans on there. You need an entire ecosystem. So you need to understand the ecosystem before we can go and explore space before we can go to to live on mars even for example you know so and that takes a lot more biogeochemists <laughs> and collaboration 
and, and collaboration comes with organizations such as DS that puts people from different research spectrums together. And collaboration, I'm a big believer in this one, collaboration also comes from talking to people at the bar over a beer. <laughs> cheers. So cheer, cheers yeah, to that. Cheers. So this competition, to remind the listener, it's open for students of the University of Southern Denmark. If you're listening uh, from around the world and you're not part of the University of Southern Denmark, why don't you write it anyway and, and have a little look at it? What I've discovered this past year is r- just writing things down helps in general, you know, mm. especially if, if you have an, an irrational thought, you know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you have like a, a fear, there's been a lot of fear this past year. If you write it down and look at it on paper, you see it as ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense anymore once you just look at the words. Um, but that that's that's the different thing. I'm going to participate in this in this uh, in this short story, just just for the pure fun of it. So if if I, I hope you do as well, the listener. And if yeah, if you're listening and you want to send it to me, I'll read it. <laughs> if you're not if, if if you're not part of the University of Southern Denmark. Uh, send it to scienceandbeers at gmail.com and if you are part of the University of Southern Denmark uh, look it up, look up Write Your Future on the, the Danish Institute for Advanced Study website and then Michael can I ask you once we have uh, the winners of the competition and I, I guess I, I see all contributors as winners in one sense because they've written down their vision and as you said things coming down on paper is already a big step forward in terms of our understanding of, of what's going on in our own minds mm-hmm. uh, but but we will eventually with this panel of uh, interdisciplinary panel of DS members of uh, somebody from human health uh, with uh, the uh, editor from Politiken um, with student representatives hopefully from all five faculties we will have to pick some winners because that's you know part of the game we want to have uh, somebody uh, celebrated for their contribution um, but I was speculating we will have a, a, a virtual gala, we will have uh, Cicely Ukasang, the author, coming and, and talking about literature and the power of literature, we'll have yes. Siegen, uh, publishing an op-ed which will be synthesizing the all the contributions uh, that came in, but we should also have a science and beer talk, shouldn't we, with the winners of the competition or maybe some, you know, jury special selected uh, people to come and share their vision, shouldn't we? I would very much like to do that. I would very much like to do that. If if the uh, the winner of the competition wants to join uh, us uh, on a on a podcast, they're more than welcome. Uh, but perhaps we could also do a a, a live event um, at the student house. In Owenza, and that'd be great. We could yeah. re- record that and, and and use that as a as a podcast episode. That would be so cool. But they could come and read their stories, couldn't they? Mm. They we would be more like than a... welcome. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. I'd love to do that. Brian, Izel, and Christina Bent, thank you very much for joining me, Science Beard Podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was nice talking. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of Science and Beers. I hope you enjoyed uh, the, the conversation. If you'd like to weigh in, if you have any uh, follow-up questions to the podcast, don't hesitate to get in touch. Send a message to one of our social media pages. They'll be linked in the description of this podcast. Send an email to scienceandbeers at gmail.com. 
send your short story if you're not a university of southern denmark student to me at the same email address follow our all the social media tags of our guests brian and, and christine see what they're up to and uh yeah again tell a friend about the podcast share it on social media give us a rating we want to to spread the word i've been your host michael mcgee thanks for listening and cheers to science <laughs>